Welcome to The Word Unveiled, and peace be with you. My name is Gordon Peck. I'm the Director of Evangelization Programs at St. Malachy Church in Sterling Heights, Michigan. St. Malachy, along with St. Paul of Tarsus, St. Ronald, and St. Thecla, are part of a family of parishes in the Archdiocese of Detroit. Father Joseph Gambala is our moderator. Our program is the first installment of Four Holy Women of God. We're going to explore the life of Teresa of Avila. But in, as in all things, let us begin in prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Let nothing disturb you. Let nothing frighten you. All things are passing away. God never changes. Patience obtains all things. Whoever has God lacks nothing. God alone suffices. In the name of the Father, the Son, Holy Spirit, amen. So the source material that we use to assemble this program is um, a three-volume works on the life of St. Teresa of Avila, uh, written by uh, Father Kieran Cavanaugh and Father Otilio Rodriguez, um, who are Carmelites, and also her own autobiography, Life, Saint, uh, Life of St. Teresa of Avila, and uh, other books and Carmelite websites and other websites for information. We also looked at the uh, miniseries, the, the movie, St. Teresa of Avila. This was produced in 2008, and it's seven hours and 30 minutes long. And it, uh, it's all in Spanish with subtitles, but you can obtain it from EWTN's religious catalog, the Catholic Company, uh, Ignatius Press, and Amazon. So episode one, St. Teresa of Avila. What you're looking at is not a painting from the past. This is a photograph of, in recent years, of, of Avila in the central part of Spain. It's one of those few cities in Europe where the medieval walls are intact and the center city is preserved. There, if you look closely, you can see a highway and cars. Uh, this, this city has been the, the movie set for um, El Cid was filmed here. And another movie, which name escapes me, but it had Cary Grant and Frank Sinatra, and they were dragging a big cannon uh, in the time of Napoleon. But it's been a wonderful backdrop for a lot of movies. A little historical background. Avila is right there in the center of Spain. In 1474, King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella came to the throne. And as they did, one of their agendas was to um, return all the religious missions to what we call a more observant, more austere practices. Um, many of the uh, uh, monasteries and convents had become a little lax. The rules had relaxed. Um, sometimes wealthy women would enter into a religious life, but they'd have their own private apartment and a servant. So they wanted to restore uh, what was fundamental to the faith in, in all of these foundations. And Pope Alexander VI, in 1491, uh, made a change which allowed monarchs to reform the religious orders within their kingdoms, within certain limits. So they were very keen to do that. The other thing that was going on is that since the year 700, the Moors, or the Islamic people from Africa, had invaded Spain and had, and had uh, progressed all the way to the Pyrenees Mountains, which is the border with France. And it took almost 700 years to slowly push them back to Africa. And in 1492, very important date as we know, uh, the Moors were driven out of Granada, which was the last 
uh, province that they controlled in southern Spain. About the same time, uh, throughout Europe, there was the uh, what we would call the Protestant Reformation, or maybe revolution is a more accurate uh, term, because they revolted from the church, broke away from the church, and leaders Swingley, Luther, and Calvin were in Germany, Switzerland, and, and those areas primarily. And so they influenced a number of people in northern Germany and throughout Scandinavia, even as far as Iceland, to um, adopt Lutheranism. And then uh, Calvin, who was in Geneva, uh, converted lots of parts of um, lots of parts of of Switzerland and the Netherlands and Scotland. There was another group, the Anglicans in in Great Britain uh, or England and Wales, I should say, um, and that was not so much a religious formation as it was uh, a political move, so that King Henry could divorce his first wife. But in any event, all of these areas started to uh, fall away from the church, and that caused King Philip II of Spain to become very concerned. He came after Ferdinand and Isabella, and he was very concerned about protecting the integrity of the faith in Spain. So he began to form what was called inquisitions. Uh, its intention was to protect people from falling into error. And it's been greatly exaggerated in in uh, television and movies and other things. It was not uh, the um, kind of despicable uh, tirade against people that we sometimes see, but it did try to reestablish the tenets of the faith. Okay, let's talk about Teresa's background. Her grandfather was a Christianized Jew, and he was a merchant in Toledo. And Toledo was uh, not far from Avila, right in the center of Spain. Her father's name was Alonso de Cepeda, and he moved from Toledo to, to Avila, and he married in 1505 but his wife died just two years later. And he remarried again six years after that in 1511. Teresa was born on March 25th, 1515. And her name, Teresa, is a Greek, Portuguese, and Spanish mixture, and it, and it means to harvest. That's the meaning of her name. Now, she was raised in a very Catholic environment, she and her brothers, and at age seven, she and her brother Rodrigo, who was a little bit older than her, they decided that they were going to walk to the land of the Moors and have their heads cut off for Christ. So they had this uh, sort of uh, slightly misguided idea of what martyrdom was all about and, and, and how they would achieve that. Well, fortunately, their uncle saw them just outside the town walls and he brought them home for dinner. We have this description of Teresa when she was young, and it's very interesting. We read, Teresa was medium in height and tended to be more plump than thin. Her unusual face could not be described as either round or aquiline. Her skin was white and her cheeks flesh-colored. Her forehead was broad, her eyebrows somewhat thick, their dark brown color having a reddish tinge. And her eyes were black, lively, and round. Not very large, but well-placed and protruding a little. Her nose was small and the mouth medium in size and delicately, delicately shaped, and her chin was well proportioned. Her white teeth sparkled and were equal in size. Her hair was a shiny black and gently curled. In many ways an extrovert, she was cheerful and friendly, a happy conversationalist whom people found pleasing to hear as well as look at. Besides her talent as a writer, she was also gifted in the use of the needle and in household tasks. I have to chuckle at that last part because 
It's describing all her physical characteristics. Then it talks about her character. And then, according to the, the Times, it talks about, was she good with a needle and could she work in the house? Now, in 1528, her mother, Beatriz, died. So um, Teresa was about 17 at that time. And her affection for her cousins and one unnamed relative turned her mind to rather frivolous and sinful pursuits. In other words, she had a she had a cousin or a girlfriend who got her into a little bit of trouble. Her early piety began to ran cold as she took an interest in all things of chivalry and adventure. And we have to realize this is coming out of the Middle Ages. Also, there are foreign colonies. The New World has been discovered. So Mexico, Peru, all of South America, these are there's stories coming back to Spain at this time. So there's a lot of of adventure in the air. Her father, to try to bring her back from becoming a little too worldly, sent her to school under the direction of the Augustinian nuns of Our Lady of Grace in Avila. But these nuns ran a school that prepared girls to become good wives. They taught them household skills, except for one. One nun, Doña Maria Viseño, she taught Teresa about prayer, and contemplative life. And this nun began to mean more to Teresa than all her former friends. And she began to think about a vocation to a religious life. But then she became ill, and sickness forced her to return to the home of her father. She stayed for a while with her cousins and then with her uncle, Don Redro de Cepeda, who lived as a hermit. And he was a holy man and had a collection of spiritual books, which he shared with her and discussed with her. So after this, she made a firm decision to enter religious life, but she was reluctant to leave her father, who is now all alone. All the sons had grown up and gone off to the new world. So at the age of 20, she finally decided she had to follow her heart, and she stole away from her father's house, and she entered the Carmelite Monastery of the Incarnation in Avila. Her father accepted her decision, regretfully, and he came to give her a generous dowry that obtained a private room for her in the monastery. And this is what was so strange about those monasteries. If you had money, you could have a private room. If you didn't, you would be in a dormitory. So the Carmelite Monastery of the Incarnation lay somewhere between the extremes in Spain. It wasn't the most strict, but it wasn't the most lenient either. And uh, contrary to Carmelite's rule, of exhortation to continual prayer, Teresa states that she didn't know how to go about praying or be recollected until she read a book called The Third Spiritual Alphabet, which her father, or rather her uncle, had given to her. So after she read that, Teresa threw herself into the new life, and she made her profession two years later. So she was very serious about a religious life. However, once again, her health failed her, and her father unintentionally brought her home, and took her to go see a quack who almost killed her. What he did to her, we don't know, but she remained an invalid, and she was paralyzed for nearly three years before the illness finally left her. So after that, she returned to the monastery, and she felt a protracted period of difficulty in prayer. Her greatest difficulty in prayer was that she, her mind would wander. She couldn't concentrate. She couldn't stay with it. And she feared going into the chapel because of this. And this lasted for 18 years, which seems incredible. But after 18 years, she one day 
happened to look at a crucifix on the wall. And that, plus the fact that she had reread St. Augustine's, Augustine's Confessions, um, gave her strong and efficacious feelings of compunction. That is, a sort of guilt for her, for her sins, maybe an overly pronounced guilt. But for her, it drew her deeper into religious life. Uh, some thought it was maybe exaggerated because she wasn't a sinful woman, uh, but she saw it as a, a gift because it propelled her along. Um, and it's the and compunction is the basic element running through her entire life and in all of her writings. Now let's go out of the monastery, and go back to the context of the times. Spain had been one of the most tolerant places on earth prior to this time. Christians, Muslims, and Jews had all lived in close proximity, and sometimes in collaboration and cooperation. But with the rise of Protestantism that I mentioned earlier, and the new religious ideas that were floating around Europe, the government of Spain under the king became very concerned about false teaching. So even before the Council of Trent was, was conducted, uh, King Philip of Spain formed an inquisition. And the inquisition was headed by two uh, Dominicans, uh, a the theologian named Melchior Cano, and the Archbishop uh, of Seville and Supreme Inquisitor was Fernando Valdez. And Cano asserted that the practice of prayer to obtain virtue was ridiculous. So he was a, in a strange place. And he and others began to ban books that they thought were misleading people. Unfortunately, a lot of the books that he wanted to ban were among Teresa's favorites. And furthermore, he didn't trust women mystics because he said Eve had been seduced by Satan, so all women were suspect. So poor Teresa is laboring under a lot of uh, difficulties here. She wanted to do right. She always wanted to do right. So she decided that her prayer life should be reviewed by spiritual advisors. And these priests that came to talk with her uh, were a little bit skeptical of some of the messages she said she was starting to receive from God. But they, and they, so they cautioned her. Um, and then, but, but they continued to counsel her. And then a deep division slowly developed in Spain between what Teresa would call the learned men, the theologians and intellectuals, and the spiritual men, those who experience, uh, and those who were experienced in prayer and who today we would call maybe charismatics or mystics. Now, Peter of Alcantara, who would later become a saint, uh, becomes a very important person in her life. He came as a spiritual director to her, and he understood her way of prayer, and he assured her that what she was doing was perfectly fine. And he urged uh, others to write about, and he urged her to write about her life in 1562 and make it available to her sisters because she had been in the monastery long enough. She was now assuming leadership positions. Well, what's a Carmelite? Let's go back to that. The Carmelite way begins in Palestine. In fact, it begins in the 12th century, uh, and it begins on Mount Carmel in Palestine. And the 12th century is the century of the Crusades. So the Crusaders have conquered the Holy Land, but now they're starting to lose it again. So a group of religious hermits uh, went to Mount Carmel, uh, wanted to live in caves like Elijah had done, and they wanted to do a, a com, uh, commit to a contemplative type of life. And early on, these hermits asked St. Albert of Jerusalem to give them a simple formula of life, which would become their rule. 
And that rule is still used to this day in the Carmelite monasteries. And the first Carmelites were forced to leave Mount Carmel because of the advancing Saracens. In other words, the Islamic forces were had conquered Jerusalem once again, and they were working their way up the coast, and it was no longer safe to stay at Mount Carmel. So the departure became a real spiritual challenge for them, because how can one remain a Carmelite apart from Mount Carmel? So their answer was, in whatever place you live, draw away from the finite and enter into the infinite space, which is God. Turn every place into a Mount Carmel. So every monastery then becomes a holy place, insofar as those there consecrate themselves to a fervent desire for God and for holiness. With Elijah, the hope is to live in the Carmelite motto, with zeal I have been zealous for the Lord God of hosts. So Teresa considered that the surest way to prayer and to live this life was to have the Carmelite, the authentic Carmelite vocation and inspiration from the primitive tradition of Carmel. So the, the discalced reform, and discalced means shoeless. So, so what it was, it was a, um, a term which recognized that they were living an ascetic or very primitive life in terms of creature comforts. So her friend Peter Valcantara uh, supported her in that, and she established monasteries of what we call an eremitical kind, which means uh, uh, primitive, no luxuries, so that they might concentrate on prayer alone. So with uh, very few resources, she was then charged to start to establish more monasteries. So she, the first she established was in the heart of the city of Avila. It was very small, and it was very uh, ascetic, and, and it was called the Convent of St. Joseph. And her rule included instructions for a life of continual prayer, safeguarded by strict enclosure. That is, they did not come and go. They stayed within their uh, monastery. It was supported by asceticism of solitude, manual labor, perpetual abstinence, fasting, and fraternal charity. So they also worked, lived in community. And then working in close collaboration with Teresa was another priest who we know as John of the Cross. And he began to found monasteries in the same uh, way for, for men in Spain. <clears throat> so Teresa was continued, was urged to continue uh, writing by Father Garcia de Toledo, Father Pe Peter Alcantara, and Father John Baptiste Rossi, who was the primer, prior prior general of the Carmelite order. And Teresa called him Rubio. So some of that precociousness of her youth started to show itself. And her life, her autobiography, was reviewed and edited by these fathers. And they found no error whatsoever. And she was greatly relieved that her thoughts were the work of God and not influenced by the devil. This was There was so much of this idea of uh, inquisition floating around. So Rubio asked her to create more foundations and more monasteries for women. And she also then met with John of the Cross and convinced him to join in her work in reforming the Carmelite order. And so he starts to do the same thing for men throughout Spain. And with, with regard to her writing, she was very prolific. Uh, she wrote her autobiography. She wrote a book called The Way of Perfection. She wrote another fantastic book called The Interior Castle. She wrote a book called The Book of Foundations. She did a meditation on the Song of Songs. 
and she wrote many letters to many individuals, and she wrote poems. And, and even beyond that, we have various maxims, thoughts, and discernments that she put to print. We'll share a little bit of this. Teresa on love. And she writes, Now it seems to me that those whom God brings to a certain clear knowledge love very differently than do, do those who have not reached it. This clear knowledge is about the nature of the world, that there is another world about the difference between the one and the other, that one is eternal and the other is a dream. So she starts like, she's starting to talk like the book of Revelation than that. She talked about detachment. She says, a great aid to going against your will is to bear in mind continually how all is vanity and how quickly everything comes to an end. This helps to remove our attachment to trivia and center it on what will never end. When we begin to become attached to something, we should strive to turn our thoughts from it and bring them back to God and his majesty helps. She always referred to God as his majesty. And this thought starts to remind us of the book of Ecclesiastes. On humility, she says, whoever has them, that is detachment and humility, can go out easily and fight with all hell together and against the whole world and all its occasions of sin. Such a person has no fear of anyone, for his is the kingdom of heaven. He has no end to fear because he doesn't care if he loses everything, nor would he consider this a loss. Sounds a little bit like the Apostle Paul there. And here's the, the uh, little, we're going to review a little bit of the interior castle. The idea of the interior castle is that God lives at the center in the, in the last house. And, and these are, there are rings of mansions that, are, that make up this castle. So in the first mansion, she says, the soul is in a state of grace. So if you're not in a state of grace, you're not even ready to begin walking toward the interior castle. But so the soul must be in a state of grace, but still attracted to, as she calls it, the venomous creatures that is symbolic of sin that dwell outside of the castle in the outer courtyards. So temptations still exist, but, but, um, you're, but you must be in a state of grace. When you reside in the first mansion for a very long time, and you must reside there for a very long time in order for the soul to make any progress. And the first mansion is called the mansion of humility. In the second mansion, the soul seeks every opportunity to grow. And you do that by listening to sermons, partaking in enriched conversations on religious subjects, and not skimping on prayer time. The soul would not be free from attack from the evil one, but its powers of resistance were strengthened. So the second mansion is called the mansion of the practice of prayer. In the third mansion, the soul realizes the dangers of trusting in one's own strength. In other words, rely on God. So, so, so the soul has attained a high standard of discipline, and it's charitable toward others. But there are limitations in this stage uh, where one might lack vision and the ability to fully experience the full force of love. The soul has not yet come to the point of total submission, and its progress is slow. It must endure a, a spirit of aridity. And that's probably what Teresa endured for the 18 years. A, a period of aridity is when you pray and you don't feel a response. You know, if it's a very dry period, you're not sure what's going on. So the third mansion is called the mansion of exemplary life. The fourth mansion is where the supernatural and the natural meet. 
And the soul no longer depends on its own efforts. The soul becomes totally dependent on God. Love comes from the true source of living water. Jesus promised the woman, Samaritan woman at the well, living water. Teresa is starting to, to allude to that here. And love breaks all bonds which had previously hindered it. That would be attachments to, to things that one needs to leave behind. Soul does not shrink from trials, so you're not afraid to go forward. No attachments to things of the world. And the soul can pass between the ordinary life and one of deep prayer and back again. And certainly she had to do that in the monastery because she would have a life of prayer and then they would have to prepare meals, do wash, do maintenance, and then go back to prayer. So the fourth mansion is the mansion of the prayer of the quiet. The fifth mansion, the soul now enters a new magnitude of contemplation and prepares for the gift of God's presence. The faculties of the soul are asleep. It's shortened duration, but while it lasts, the soul is completely possessed by God. And this is called the mansion of the prayer of union. The sixth mansion is where the soul and God are able to see each other for a long period of time. So when she's in her contemplation, she almost ceases to exist, and she's in a conversation with God. So as the soul would receive increasing favors, it would also receive more afflictions, such as bodily sickness, misrepresentation, backbiting, maybe criticism from others. There would be these little trials to see if you could be knocked off course. She calls this the mansion of the bride and the groom. And then in the seventh mansion, the transformation is made complete and there is no higher state that can be reached. That is the side of heaven. It's in this uh, mansion that the king dwells and it may be called another heaven. So two lighted candles joined to become one, falling rain becomes merged in the river, and the seventh mansion is called the mansion of spiritual marriage. So it's like the marriage supper of the lamb. So here's some thoughts about prayer from her writings. She talks about silence and solitude help prayer. She says, it is well to seek a greater solitude so as to make room for the Lord and allow his majesty to do his own work in us. So removing external hindrances, it's a prerequisite for prayer to succeed. And she quotes Jesus on that. She says, when you pray, go into your room, shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. It's from Matthew's gospel. Then she also says, however quietly we speak, he is so near that we will hear that he will hear us. We have no need of wings to go in search of him, but have only to find a place where we can be alone and look upon him and present within us. Then she talks about God dwelling within us. She says, once we freed ourselves from external distractions, the next step is to understand that God dwells within us. This theme appears constantly in Teresa's writings. She understands that God dwells in the center of her soul as a king in his castle, hence her whole dissertation on the interior castle. And she says, if I had understood, as I do now, that in this little palace of my soul dwelt so great a king, I would not have left him alone so often. So she says that uh, those who can remain with God in their souls will journey far in a short time. And then on humility, she she describes how humility will bolster prayer. From the perception of God's presence and love, Teresa recommends humbling oneself. God loves to see us as small children before him. Teresa observes, 
What I have come to understand is that this whole groundwork of prayer is based on humility and that the more a soul lowers itself in prayer, the more God raises it up. Attentiveness is vital. She says, a prayer in which a person is not aware of whom he is speaking to, what he is asking, who it is who is asking, and of whom I do not call prayer, however much the lips move. And then she says, this intellect is so wild that it doesn't seem to be anything else than a frantic madman no one can tie down. So she's talking about her earlier troubles when she could not concentrate during prayer. And then she says prayer is not thinking much. So she says prayer is not an intellectual analysis or philosophical investigation. For Teresa, the whole thing boils down to love. In order to profit by this path and ascend to the dwelling places we desire, the important thing is not to think much, but to love much. And, and so do whatever best stirs you to love. I'm not asking you now that you think about him or that you draw out many concepts or make long, subtle reflections with your intellect. I'm not asking you to do anything more than to look at him. And then she talks about prayer being a habit. And she says, one needs no bodily strength for mental prayer, but only love and the formation of a habit. The habit of recollection is not to be gained by force or of arms, but with calmness. And then asceticism. She talks about how that helps in prayer. She says, prayer and self-indulgence don't go together. The word asceticism comes from the Greek term, Eschesis, which means training or exercise. And while many saints took this to the extremes, Teresa advocates a balanced approach. Her nuns embraced austerity, but did not go to extremes. Practices such as fasting help clear the mind, calm the soul, and make spiritual realities come alive. One feels dull and a little in, and, and disinclined to prayer with a full body, belly. So prayer means love and it requires courage. So she says prayer is an exercise of love. We must have a determined determination to never give up prayer. How I wish our reason would make us dissatisfied with this habit of always serving God at a snail's pace. As long as we do that, we shall never get to the end of the road. And she also says that prayer builds friendships. Mental prayer, in my opinion, is nothing else than an intimate sharing between friends. It means taking time frequently to be alone with him who we know loves us. Believe me, you should remain with so good a friend as long as you can. Do you think it's some small matter to have a friend like this at your, at your side? And then she says, whoever lives in the presence of so good a friend, meaning God, and excellent a leader who went ahead of us to be the first to suffer can endure all things. The Lord helps us, strengthens us, and never fails. He is a true friend. So she went into the world. She spent so much time in prayer, but she also went into the world and she founded new foundations, new as they called them, or monasteries. And you can see from this map that she went to the north, she went to the east, she went to the south, she went to the west, and she filled in the center of the country as well. She established 17 foundations for discalced Carmelites throughout Spain. But all this travel and the work started to take a hole started to take a toll, rather, on her health. Her health had always been precarious. So she continued to collaborate with John of the Cross, and he was uh, establishing missions as well, 
but he developed some enemies and was imprisoned. And that's another story for another time. Now, in her last days, she was traveling through some rather terrible weather um, in, a, in a carriage, rainy, muddy, uh, cold, a lot of wind. And she was in, uh, establishing these monasteries and then going back to make sure that they were operating correctly. But she grew very weary and she had to retire to a chamber on October 4th, 1582. And she, in the arms of her beloved sisters, she died and breathed out these last words. She says, oh, my Lord and my spouse, now the hour has arrived for us to go forth from this exile. And my soul rejoices in oneness with you over what I have so much desired. So in summary, when we look at her life, uh, we realize she spent most of her life in a convent. She was never formally schooled. Uh, she re was repelled at the thought of attaining public fame, and yet she did become famous all over Spain because of all the work that she did. And her works were also uh, read far and wide, especially Life and the Interior Castle. She established new foundations throughout the country, and she wrote brilliant treatises for the edification of her fellow nuns, which were shared with others. And then reaching the very summit of personal sanctity through a life of prayer, humility, and charity was her goal, which she achieved. She, however, considered her, uh, she considered herself and therefore her writings to be of so little importance. Her audience was her, the sisters in her convents, but later becomes the whole world. She also wrote to those who might someday have the desire to penetrate either the, uh, the outer or inner mansions. And she was uneducated, but the theology in her books was very, very accurate. And woven throughout her books were the themes of the importance of self-knowledge, detachment, and suffering. So St. Teresa of Avila, who is sometimes known as St. Teresa of Jesus, was born under the name of Teresa de Cepeda y Ahumada. And she was born March 28, 1515 in Avila and died on October 4th, 1582 in Alba de Tormes in Spain. She was canonized in 1622, which was rather quick for a saint in those days. Her feast day was October 15th, or is October 15th. She's the patron saint of religious with illnesses. She's a great mystic and author. She originated or the, she is the originator of the Carmelite reform, that is the Discalced Carmelites, which restored the emphasis on austerity and, and deep prayer. She was elevated to be a doctor of the church in 1970 by Pope Paul VI, the first woman to ever be so honored. St. Teresa of Avila, pray for us. Our next program will be on Therese of Lisieux. So let us close in prayer. In the name of the Father, and Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In the name of the Father, and Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Thanks for listening. Peace be with you.